All right, well, let's study God's Word together. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 today, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to talk about this topic here, a better sacrifice, a better sacrifice. Let me ask you, do you remember uh, the first time you ever felt guilty? Um, you probably don't because it probably it don't. It probably happened at such an early age uh, when you did something and you knew it was wrong and it kind of flooded your heart in that way. Uh, you probably don't necessarily remember it, but you, you might have a time that you remember really uh, feeling gripped by guilt in some way um, where you did something you knew was wrong and you knew it. You know, I see this with my kids now, uh, particularly with, you know, our oldest. Uh, it's not unusual for him to come to me telling me something, right? Uh, telling me something that I didn't know or whatever, try, trying to um, kind of um, clear his conscience in some way or, or coming back and apologizing for something later uh, that he got in trouble for earlier. He's trying to cl- uh, have a clean conscience, right, is what he's, what he's aiming for there. And, you know, we all have a conscience. And some are more sensitive than others, but we all have them. And that's, that small voice inside that tells you that was wrong, you shouldn't do that, or you shouldn't do this, um, or you should do that, um, our conscience can help us, help us make decisions, but it can also mislead us into bad decisions. Uh, we are fallen people. We, are, we have sinned, and uh, sin has affected everything about us, including our conscience. So sometimes our conscience gets it wrong, um, absolutely. And uh, sometimes people even, might even say something like, well, I don't think I did anything wrong. I don't feel bad about it, so therefore, but see, our conscience, our feelings are not the standard. God's word is the standard, and so we have to, to understand that. But your conscience can also weigh you down with guilt. Like a kid that's done something wrong that randomly confesses things to their parents, we all want a clean conscience. And guilt on the conscience has been around since the fall. This is nothing new. If you've wrestled with a guilty conscience, you're not the first. The first was Adam and Eve. We're Adam and Eve. Think back with me for a moment to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? Well, they, they covered themselves. Remember that? They covered themselves with fig leaves. And then when God comes looking for them, they, they hid. So they were covered in fig leaves and they hid from God and guilt and shame and fear was rushing into their lives uh, when sin rushed into their, when sin came into their lives. And I'm sure they felt horrible. I mean, what did that feel like when, when, when sin entered the world for the first time and guilt and shame and fear for the first time was really felt by them in that way? But it also helped them know that they had done something wrong. And what does God do? He comes into the scene, and what does he do? He covers them with animal skins, showing us only God can remove our guilt and cover our shame, and that it's ultimately going to take a sacrifice for that to happen. And then God makes a promise that the woman's offspring, Eve's offspring, would crush the head of the serpent, right? We've talked about that before, Genesis 3.15, and um, the first proclamation of the gospel, and how that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my point is, from the biblical perspective, dealing with our conscience, our guilt, and our sin so that we can be reconciled to God and at peace with God and know and worship Him, and that has been something, that has been an issue that humanity has been wrestling with since the fall, since the beginning, right? And so, but the animal skins that were used uh, to cover Adam and Eve's skin, physical skin, ultimately was pointing ahead to a sacrificial system, you might say, that would be handed down to ultimately deal with sin and that ultimately pointed to a greater sacrifice that needed to come a better one the only one that can come and remove sin and yes uh, cleanse your conscience and that is that of the Lord Jesus Christ and in Hebrews chapter 9 the author is showing us the author of Hebrews is showing us how Jesus's sacrifice how his shed blood on our behalf is better it's better than those Old Testament sacrifices in this passage we can learn a lot about the Old testament sacrificial system and what it has to teach us but we also learn about jesus's sacrifice how it can 
change us. So there's some things that the Old Testament sacrificial system can teach us, and there's some ways we need to learn that Jesus' sacrifice can change us. So look with me, starting in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So let's pause there. The writer here is describing the setup for how sacrifices worked under the old covenant. There was a place uh, set up uh, on earth, a place of holiness and regulations for how to worship. He is going to contrast this with the, with the new here in, a, here in a little bit. And the old had a tent, he says, on earth. He had a, had a first section called the holy place. He's describing the wilderness tent that was set up in the, uh, in the Exodus time period, in, in, back in Exodus, during the Exodus time period there, um, is what he's describing here um, with this with this tent and this this first section called the holy place. Let's go on to verse 3. Behind the second curtain, so there's another curtain, was a second section called the most holy place. All right? So it's, it's, it's we're getting a little, getting holy place, most holy place. Verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. He says, that's as far as I'm going to go with all the details of this. And he says here, there's a, there's a second curtain. Behind that is the most holy place, and he describes the setup. Now, notice the details, the gold, the altar, the incense. Notice the reminders with things like, um, uh, things like Aaron's staff that budded, uh, the manna, the tablets of the covenant. Now, these reminders of God's power, God's provision, God's faithfulness. Yes, even God's standard there with the Ten Commandments and God's care. All these reminders there uh, you, you, you can take note of. Now, verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let me give you some quotes here to help us understand what's going on. He's describing this sacrificial setup. Listen to what F.F. Bruce writes about this. He says, In the tabernacle and in the temples which replaced it, the outer compartment, the holy place, was in continual use. It's that first place he describes. Day by day, morning and evening, the appointed priest entered in to trim the lamps on the lampstand and at the same time to burn incense on the incense altar. He goes on to say, again, week by week, the appointed priest entered the holy place to put fresh loaves on the table of showbread. And he points out that any priest could do these duties. Uh, this was the regular activity of priests that were going on. Every day, any of the priests could go in and could do these duties that he's talking about. But however, the most holy place was different. The second place he talks about behind the second curtain, it was different. There was only one priest that could go in there, and that was the high priest. And he could only go in there this one, uh, one day per year uh, with very strict rules in place for how to do that. Now, Bruce describes that. Let me read F.F. F. Bruce how he describes uh, this to you. Aaron, and that means each successive high priest of Israel, might enter the Holy of Holies on the tenth day of the seventh month in each year. 
Attired not in his violet robe and its accessories, but in vestments of white linen, which were reserved for special sacrificial occasions. He entered the Holy of Holies twice. On the first occasion, he carried the blood of the bullock, which had been sacrificed as a sin offering for himself and his household, and sprinkled it on the front of the mercy seat and before the mercy seat, which which all the time was shrouded in the cloud arising from the incense which burned on the golden altar. Then, when a goat had been slaughtered as a sin offering for the people at large, he brought its blood, too, into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on and before the mercy seat. Having thus accomplished this part of the atoning ritual, he came out of the sanctuary and confessed the national sins over the head of the second goat, which was then driven from the haunts of men into a solitary land. So what a description that we have here of what's going on when this, uh, these sacrifices were made. So he had to sacrifice for his own sins and the sins of his family. Then he had to sacrifice another uh, goat for the sins of the people. And then there's a second goat, right, where he goes outside and he confesses the sins of the people over that goat. And that's what the scapegoat, you get the term scapegoat, comes from that. And he sends it off into the wilderness carrying the sins away. All of this is ultimately pointing to Jesus, it's ultimately pointing us to Christ. And, but in verse 8, the writer of Hebrews points out that the Holy Spirit is indicating something through all this. He says he teaches us through this that the way into the holy place is not yet opened. That in other words, there's still separation. The ultimate sacrifice had not been made. Sin had not ultimately been atoned for in this final way that, that the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't, couldn't, couldn't take sin away. Man needed a savior, a better high priest, a better sacrifice. Man needed a way to be able to actually enter into God's presence, to, to, to be able to, to come before God and as he says as long as that that first place is there you know it, it, it shows you that, that that hasn't been done right and so then Christ comes and everything's going to change and the author says in verse 9 that none of this these gifts these sacrifices none of it could perfect the conscience of the worshiper it couldn't remove the guilt uh, the barrier man's conscience was still um, afflicted because of man's sin and there's some things that the the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system teaches us. So let's talk about that for a second. What the Old Testament sacrificial system teaches us. Now there's a lot of things we could point out. I'm just going to point out two quick ones uh, just as we look over this passage that we've looked over. The first one is this, the significance of worship. He says there, very verse first, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And then he begins to lay out some of those, right? It, the, the, the first covenant had regulations for how to worship God. Um, it, it, there was commandments on how to live your life as a, in a life of worship. And there's commandments on how to actually uh, worship God and how, the, the, how sin needed to be atoned for. And all these different things and all these rules and the washings and all the different things uh, showing um, uh, the, the cleanliness that was required. And then there was the ornate detail of the of the of the tabernacle and then the temple and all these sort of things and, and all this details and, 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 and it's teaching us the significance of worshiping God. God has always desired to be worshipped. God has always made a way for man to worship him. And this passage shows us that God went into great detail to arrange this worship because God is holy. We'll talk more about that, but God is, God is holy. And you can't just worship him however you want to, right? And, and, and worship is to be a priority. It is significant. It is important. We are talking, why? Because of who we worship. We worship God. And, and that is a big deal. I want you to imagine this for a second. If you have, and in these rules, these, these, all this detail and this listing, what we're reading here that you can go read more about in places in the Old Testament, they point, they point this out to us. They point out the significant nature of worship. 
And, you know, I was thinking, you know, if you had somebody, you know, maybe you've had this happen before. Somebody goes out of town and they're like, hey, can you take care of our dog? You ever had that? And or maybe you've done that, you know, and, and, and they might say, you know, you might have one person that might say, oh, just, you know, just go by and check on him every now. Make sure he's got food and water. If you miss a day, it's not a big deal. He'll find something, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> they'd be very kind of loose about it, just kind of like, ah, you know, and you, you, okay, I guess you want me to check on the dog, but, you know, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. But you might have another friend that's like, um, I've got a manual for you on how to take care of my dog. And, you know, uh, what, how much food, now don't give him too much, not too little, and when, what time that needs to happen, and how much water, and, 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 and I'll, you know, or maybe can he stay with you, uh, the dog, or, and, and I'm going to call every uh, day at six o'clock just to check on the dog, and check and see if, uh, if you understand everything, all the instructions, right, and just the detail, and more instructions, and all, would communicate something to you, well, this is a big deal to them, you know, I mean, they really care about this dog, uh, this, is, this is a significant thing. All the detail, all the instructions would communicate that this, this matter is of great importance. And my point is, when you read the Old Testament and you see all this stuff and you get lost in Leviticus or wherever you're at and you're like, oh man, you know, how do I, what do I do with all this? Just realize, worship's a big deal. How you, how you come to God's a big deal. You, you, you worship God, God's way. You're, we're talking about God, the God of the universe, the God of the Bible. Uh, it's a big deal deal because God is a he's real and he's holy and um and and we're not and our worship matters a great deal to God we're created to worship him and worship is default we're all worshiping someone or something but how we approach God matters because he's holy and when you read this passage you shouldn't walk away thinking well worship is some sort of uh, personal deal between me and God and God just sort of gets me and I can worship God however I want to you know what I mean some people seem to think I worship God this way you worship God that way it's no big deal listen you worship God his way or you don't worship God we worship God his way his way in both the Old Testament and New Testament, God tells us how to worship. In the New Testament, worship has been radically transformed, and Jesus says we'll worship in spirit and in truth. We worship from the heart, and we know from both the Old and the New that this worship, it matters to God, and it begins in the heart. It's not about ritual, as we understand, but it's about a relationship with God, and it's about knowing God, loving God, um, surrendering to God, obeying God, trusting God, um, all these acts of worship. And it can only be done, as we're going to see here in a little bit, it can only be done through a faith relationship with, through Jesus Christ. But God prioritizes worship. It's significant to him. We're made to know and love and obey God, and this passage should shout to you the significance of worship. But also, it shouts the seriousness of sin and guilt, because God is holy. He's perfect, and he's holy, and he's sinless, and he's not like us. He, he's never sinned. He, he, he's, he's, he's perfect and infinite in a way that we can't even fully comprehend, and this makes our sin and guilt very serious before God. When you read passages like this, you should think, wow, God is holy and people are not. You should be able to see it, right? All the rules, the limited access, the sacrifices. It's showing us there is a separation between man and God. God is holy. Man is sinful. Sin is serious. Sin is tragic. It's like the old illustration. I've, I've shared this with our people at North Park before I sin, you know, uh, that I've heard people use before. Um, if I sin against a, a rock, I haven't done much, right? If I sin against a dog, I've done more. If I sin against a person, I've done a lot more because they're made in the image of God. But if I sin against God, I've done something infinitely wrong, infinitely sinful because God is infinitely holy. He's God. It changes everything. 
And the Old Testament system shouts to us, God is holy and man is sinful and this is a big deal. It's a big deal. In verse 9, he points out how man's conscience could not be perfected through these sacrifices. In fact, every year when a new sacrifice was made, man was once again being reminded of his sin and his guilt. Man didn't walk away with peace from these sacrifices. He walked away knowing, I got to do this again next year. And I got to do it the year after that. And I got to do it that year after that. And I've got to make this journey on the day, for the day of atonement over and over and over and over again. And it was a constant reminder of our sin. And they didn't walk away with great peace in the heart. The guilt remained. So look at what he says, though, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And now he deals with our better high priest who offers a better sacrifice. He comes through the greater tent I talked about heaven there. Jesus goes into the actual holy place. He is in the presence of God right now. And Jesus, you know, he didn't offer a goat or a calf. He laid down his own life, he points out. His own, he shed his own blood. He bled and died himself. He bled and died himself for us, for sinners. The idea of a blood sacrifice weirds some people out. Um, and, it, and if so, it's because we've failed to understand the seriousness of sin. That's what you need to understand. Uh, listen, the, this reminds us that sin is serious and the holiness of God is, is serious and sin is ugly and sin is deadly and God is appalled by sin. And if we fail to see the significance of the fact that Christ had to die on the cross in our place for us to be able to be saved, we fail to understand the real gravity of sin, the real holiness of God and the real love God has for us. Dr. Al Mohler writes about the importance of blood atonement. This is what he says. He says, The substitutionary animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant were vivid reminders that transgressors deserved death. Yet through these substitutionary blood sacrifices, God made a way to atone for sin. Therefore, blood is symbolic in the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant because it demonstrates the costliness of sin. It graphically illustrates that with sin comes death. In fact, if you go down to chapter 9, verse 22, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, remember, so sin brings death. And this is a vivid reminder that every time they go in, every year, they have atonement. When these uh, goats are being sacrificed, goats being sacrificed, when, the, when the, the bull's being sacrificed for the priest, when these things are happening, these animals are dying, it was a reminder, sin brings death, sin brings death, sin brings death, sin brings death. Year after year, sin brings death, sin brings death, sin brings death. Sin is ugly and gruesome and it brings pain and it brings judgment and it brings condemnation. Sin brings death over and over. And every year they go in over and over again. I have to go through this over and over again. Sin brings death, sin brings death, sin brings death. But then Jesus comes and he lays down his life for us once and for all, so that we, instead of bearing God's judgment, 
taking spiritual and eternal death, we get to be reconciled to God and we get life because Jesus died in our place. Jesus shedding his own blood for us shows ultimately how costly sin is. And yes, how loved we are because he willingly chose to do that. He willingly chose to come and lay down his life for us. He gave himself for us. Only his sacrifice, that of the sinless son of God in the place of sinners, can ultimately take care of our sin problem. So let's talk for a moment how the better sacrifice of Christ changes us. Number one, it cleanses our guilty conscience. Cleanses our guilty conscience. How much more, he says in verse 14, with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works of the living God. Only through faith in Christ can our conscience be purified, be made clean. Christ cleanses us from within. And because we know that in Christ our sin has been punished and we have been forgiven, we can have peace and joy and freedom because we know that our sin's been paid for, because we know he he bore the punishment we deserve. Uh, Our guilt can be removed and our conscience can be clean because the barrier is gone between us and God. Only Jesus, without blemish, as the perfect sinless sacrifice, can perfectly cleanse our conscience. It took the perfect sacrifice to perfect our conscience. And he purifies it from what? Dead works. Now what's that? Now some, some people think it means like all the deeds of the flesh, right? Because we're dead in sin and, and things of that nature. You know, others believe it's referring to the things we try to do to earn God's favor, right? They're dead works because we're dead in our sin and so all of our works are as filthy rags. And this is absolutely true. Everything we do before Christ is tainted by sin, right? What, what, whatever we do. Um, yes, we, we commit sin, but, but also even our, our, our good things that we do are, are tainted by sin. The things we do, like I said, the, the, the Bible says um, our righteousness is as filthy rags. On our best day, we stink with sin. Everything is tainted by it. Our guilt touches everything because of our sin. And many times, we know, we sense our guilt before God, so we try to, humanity will try to do things right? People try to do things when they have that guilty conscience. Um, I'll give you some examples. Some people get super religious, right? They want to get, they, they sense the guilt. They know they've done things that are wrong. They know there's a separation there between them and God. And so they get super religious and they, they, they start going to church or they join some other religion or whatever it may be. And they, they devote themselves to religion and, and trying to do things a certain way to try to cover that. Some may try to drown their guilt right, with drugs and with alcohol, try to just wash it away, try to kind of escape from it, uh, or some other form of escapism, right? They'll drugs, alcohol, they'll throw themselves into immorality, whatever it may be. They try to escape uh, what's going on there. Some will try to, to work it away in their career. They'll try to escape that way. They just try to, um, just, man, I'll, I'll just throw myself into my career, be a workaholic, and uh, for, for one, it's a distraction. Another way, it makes me feel worthy. The more I do, it makes me feel worthy, it makes me feel like a better person, uh, makes me feel like I'm more acceptable to others, maybe deep down more acceptable to God. Some will try to cover it with their family life, right? I'll just be the best husband, the best wife, the best father, the best mother that I can be. But here's the thing. None of it works. The guilt remains. You're going to be making another sacrifice, so to speak. Over and over and over again, the guilt remains. It doesn't cleanse your conscience. The sin remains. It's still there. The, the judgment over your sin hangs there. The condemnation remains. It can only be removed in Christ. You know, imagine if you had something very precious and somehow it got thrown into the trash and it gets hauled off to the dump and, and you're tracing it down, right? And man, and you just dive in to get that 
it's right in there and you're diving into that dump truck or whatever it may be that dumpster and you're going after it right you're going every which way and then stuff's all over you and you finally find it right and you get out and man uh, you've just got garbage all over you you smell and you're thinking man I need a shower and you begin to walk off and about that time a skunk walks by and a skunk sprays you Uh, I know it's getting really gross right and then you just smell putrid right now you can go home or get in your car put in the little air freshener it's not going to do a lot. You, you can go home and light some candles around the house, uh, spray on some deodorant or some perfume or some cologne uh, to try to mask the smell, but that's not going to work, is it? Everywhere you go, the smell's going to go. <laughs> Everything you touch, the smell's going to touch. Now, you need to be cleaned. <laughs> you, you need to burn those clothes, <laughs> and, you, and you need, uh, you need uh, a, a, a deep clean of your body, and then you need fresh clothes. You need to be cleansed. Because this is going to follow you everywhere. And what I'm saying is, that's the way the guilty conscience is. Our guilt follows us everywhere. The only way our guilt can be removed, our sin taken care of, our conscience made clean, is through the Lord Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on the cross. Only He can purify us. He bled and died to do just that. Only He can cleanse the conscience. Only He can cleanse your guilt. Only He can remove your sin. And praise God in Jesus, that's what happened. We don't, we don't have to walk around feeling guilty, right? We, we, we've, we don't have to wonder when we stand before God, are we going to be condemned for that? Right? No, we know we, in Christ we can be forgiven and we can be made clean and that God has forgiven us. Number two, it secures our future with God. He says he entered once for all into the holy places. Verse 12, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an, here's the phrase, eternal redemption, forever redemption, going on and on and on, redeemed forever, redeemed eternally. Uh, He doesn't just cleanse us for the year or for the moment. He cleanses us forever. His sacrifice is to bring about eternal, forever redemption. Redemption here means to be set free, to be liberated. Jesus Jesus has purchased us out from underneath the penalty of sin. He paid our sin debt so we can be free. His redemption is eternal. And the things Jesus redeemed redeemed you from, the moment you believed 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, whenever you first believed, you're still redeemed from those things. Past, present, and future sins are taken care of in Christ. There will never be a time where God says, well, what Jesus did wasn't enough. There will never be a time where God says to a believer, I can't forgive your sin today. This means your future with God is secure. Heaven is secure. Your hope is secure. And Jesus' salvation in your life is eternal. That's good news. Look at verse 25 here at the end of chapter 9. Verses 25 through 28 says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus did what? He appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, at just the right time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the greatness, the magnitude of his sacrifice takes care of your sin forever. Puts it away. It's been judged. It's been condemned. It doesn't have to be condemned over and over and over again. It's been condemned. Our future in Christ is secure. 
Remember, sin brings death. It's a point unto man wants to die, and after this, the judgment because of sin. And sins, it brings death, it brings judgment. So it's got to be dealt with. Every sin is going to be judged. So either the penalty for your sins have been, either you trust Jesus to, to take your sin away because of what he did for you on the cross, or you choose to go into eternity in your sin and to be punished for your sin forever under the judgment of God. But Christ has so taken care of the believer's sin debt that not only has he bore our sin, he's coming back, he says, but not to die again, but to save us. This passage is reminding us that Christ will return for us, that our salvation will be made final, complete. We will we'll not only be saved from sin's penalty, but from its power and ultimately its very presence in our lives. Praise God for that. Our future is secure through Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. And number three, it changes us because it transforms our present reality. He doesn't just change our eternity and our future. He changes our present life. Obviously, we've already seen he cleanses our conscience, but what else? Well, he gives us a heart for service. He says we're cleansed from dead works, our conscience cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. The believer doesn't toil in dead works. We're not trying to earn favor and forgiveness. We are serving the living God with joy and gratitude and sincerity out of sincere love for God. I've never met a genuine Christian that didn't have a heart to serve God, didn't want to obey him, that didn't want to honor and glorify him. We, we seek to live in accordance with his revealed will. We seek to be a part of his church and to serve him by serving others. We do this with a purified conscience. It's not trying to cover our sins, but celebrate the one who removed our sin. You know, there's a, there's a difference. There's a difference, right, in trying to earn God's favor and celebrating the fact that and you're favored in Christ and trying to, and trying to um, do something to take your sin away or doing something just because you love God and he's taking your sin away? If a husband was to seriously wrong his wife in some way and then he tries to buy her a nice present to make things better, I'm not talking about, you know, they've had a little spat. I'm talking about he did something seriously wrong. She'd be offended, right? She doesn't want to be bought. That doesn't fix what he did wrong. And at the same time, if a husband who just loves his wife and buys her a gift because he delights in her, she will receive that with joy. Because, why? Because there's a difference in the motive. <laughs> there's a difference. One's about delight. One's about appeasement. It's about duty or it's about um, just, it's kind of a, ugh, you know, a drudge or it's, 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 a, it's a bribe or, or whatever it may be. And there's a difference in our serving God to try to make up for our sin and shame and guilt and pay it off and trying to earn God's favor and are doing so out of a delight because we love God because he's taken our sin away because he's forgiven our sin. Jesus transforms us into those that go from dead works to actually serving the living God. He transforms our service so that we serve God with joy and delight all our days. But he also gives us a desire for Christ's return. At the very end there, he talks about how Jesus is coming back to save there in verse, I believe it's verse 28, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The believer is one who is eagerly waiting for Jesus. We, we desire to see and to be with Jesus. We desire for him to return and to right the wrongs. We, we are those that pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the new heaven and the new earth. We long for Jesus to rule and to reign. Uh, the old covenant, they had priests what? Go into God's presence for them to make sacrifice. 
But Jesus makes it so that we can come into God's presence now. He, he, has, he has made it so we can approach God. He has made it so we can uh, one day be in God's presence forever. And we long to be with him. We long for him to reign over our hearts and lives. And instead of fearing his judgment, we can rejoice in his presence. And that's a big deal. Remember Adam and Eve? We talked about it at the beginning, how they hid from God in shame and guilt after their sin. But here we see in this a picture of people waiting eagerly, longing for the Son of God to return. Everything's different. What changed? Jesus changed everything. He changed everything. He changed about everything through his sacrifice and through his resurrection. The better sacrifice. You know, a lot of people look forward to the idea of heaven. But only believers in Christ long for the real heaven. Everybody else is longing for a mirage. Usually something that reveals just how sinful we are sometimes. But, you know, we write songs in our culture about heaven. Uh, People talk about wanting to go to heaven. It's whatever in their mind sounds great. But for the believer, it's about Christ and about being with him and him ruling and reigning. Let me read a quote to you. George Guthrie records this in his commentary on Hebrews. It's it's from a letter uh, that Ernest Hemingway wrote in 1925 to F. Scott Fitzgerald. So the, the famous author, Ernest Hemingway, wrote this in 1925 in a letter to F. Scott Fitzgerald about heaven. And this is what he says. To me, heaven would be a big bull ring with me holding two Barrera seats and a trout stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in and two lovely houses in the town, one where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well, and the other where I would have my nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. That's what Ernest Hemingway had to say about heaven. Big Big bull ring where he's got front front row seats and a trout stream where only he gets to go fish in two houses. One with the family that he can love and support and be with and another one with filled with mistresses. Let me ask you, what does heaven look like to you? What are you eager for? Maybe it's not something as vile sounding as what Hemingway wrote. But is it Jesus? Do you eagerly wait for Jesus? Believers should be eager to put off sin and to be with Jesus. Should long for the new heaven, new earth, where there's no more sin, and there's, where Christ is ruling and reigning as our king. The more we grow, the more we mature, the more we walk with him, the more we'll long for that. The more that desire will increase. And when that desire wanes, it's just a sign that we've gotten caught up in the world. We've gotten distracted. We've gotten, we've gotten um, weighed down by the sins of this world. Let me tell you, Jesus' sacrifice is better. It's better. Has it been applied to your life? Have you experienced, remember the old hymn we used to sing, the power in the blood? Have you experienced that? Has your guilt and, and your conscience been cleansed? Your sin taken away? Has your future with God been secured? Has your present been transformed? Do you serve God out of just joy and love? Do you long for him? Are you eager for the return of of Christ, do you, is the idea of the better future to you, is it the idea of, of being with Christ and Him ruling and reigning and there being no sin? You being with Him forever and Him ruling and reigning in the new heaven and the new earth, is, does that sound like heaven to you? I encourage you today, if you've never trusted Christ, to trust Christ. His sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can take away our sin and our guilt. He, the sinless Son of God died for sinners like you and me, laid down his life, bearing our sin and our guilt on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve, rising again on the third day, 
from dead, to never die again, rising in victory over sin, death, and hell for our justification so that we can be declared righteous before God. And the Bible says if anyone, any of us, if we turn from our sin and embrace him by faith, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe the good news about him, we can be saved. We'll repent of our sin and believe the gospel. Have you done that? Believer in Christ, if you've done that, let me encourage you to continue to walk in that truth. Rejoice in the fact of what Christ has done to take your sin away. Give thanks to God. And take this truth to your neighbors who need it, who are weighed down by their sin. Serve God with joy because you can now. Because of Christ, you can serve God not out of a drudge, but out of joy. And let's be a people who eagerly are waiting for him and longing for him to return and praying for him to return. Let's do that now. Father, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, just like uh, John says in Revelation, surely come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to the day that Jesus returns to this earth for his own. And, uh, and we, we anticipate that, Lord. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. And until then, find us faithful, serving and obeying and, and sharing the gospel. I pray for anybody watching and listening right now who's never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would do that now. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I pray that they'd trust Christ today and let us know about it so that we can rejoice with them so that we can help them in their journey. Father, I pray for every believer that we would walk in the truths of the scripture, that we'd live it out, that we'd share it with others, and that Christ would be magnified in our lives. And so, Lord, we say thank you today. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you that though our sin is great, your grace is greater. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.